And as his strength failed him at length, he met a pilgrim shadow. Shadow, said he, where can it be, this land of El Dorado? Over the mountains of the moon, down the valley of the shadow, ride, boldly ride, the shade replied, if you seek for El Dorado. Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine the TV show Ancient Aliens. Do the claims hold water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there? I'm your host Frederick and this is episode 23. And as you might guess from the title, this will be a cold heavy episode. We will break down episode 4 from season 3, Aliens and Temples of Gold. In this episode, we will go and look for El Dorado and scour the highlands of Peru for another golden city called Paititi. How did the ancient Egyptians obtain all their gold? Could there be that they had access to lost technologies that we're just now starting to unlock? Remember that you can find sources, resources and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. You will also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like the podcast, I would appreciate if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Now, when we have finished with our preparation, let's dig into the episode. So where to start an episode about gold, if not with the quest for El Dorado? I have to hand it to them this time. They seem to have a clear thread in this part and will somewhat stick to it. The show takes us to the highlands of Colombia and Lake Guatavita, which the narrator claimed was formed by impact by a meteorite. Could this lake be the origin of the mystery that is El Dorado? And they explain the myth as follow. Since the 16th century, El Dorado has been the holy grail for fortune hunters. Legends abound about a place full of untold riches somewhere in South America. Yet to this day, the mythical city remains undiscovered. But if such a magnificent place does exist, how has it eluded explorers for centuries? Some believe the answer lies within this mysterious lake. Now, I'm not entirely sure why they had the ranking of the civilization there, but uh, all right. Let's continue with the show's explanation before starting pulling out, you know, pushpins and yarns and try to figure this one out. And they do a decent job describing the, well, the Spanish view of the story of El Dorado. It's told to us that the ruler of uh, Moiscas was known as Sipa, and I'm going to pause here quickly the idea of one ruler one tribe civilization empire is somewhat eurocentric thought in reality the muiscas were a confederation of several tribes with a shared culture even if um, the independent chiefdom formed it the tribe would usually unite against a common threat and this confederation was headed by a northern and for a lack of a better word, ruler called Hua, and the south was governed by Sipa. So they're technically correct, but it's a bit more complex than the show represents this. Now, the show explains that the conquistadors call this Sipa ruler the Golden Wall, or El Hombre Dorado, due to a special ceremony in which the leader participated. According to the show, the leader would go out on a raft in the lake and sacrifice large amounts of gold to the gods residing in Lake Guatavita. 
And over the time, the name changed and became shorter until it finally became a location called El Dorado. We also learned that in 1912, the lake was excavated by the engineer Hartley Knowles, who recovered some $20,000 worth of treasure. But this is only a tiny sliver of what people believe was hidden by the tribe beneath the lake. So how do the show do compare to the genuine history of El Dorado? Well, they didn't spend so much time on this location, and maybe it's because the more you look, the more El Dorado turns into a story, a myth, you know, something of legend. El Dorado has spawned stories and legends since the beginning, and it's hard to mention another location other than maybe Atlantis that's generated so much literature and fiction. From Edgar Allan Poe's poem El Dorado to Vol- Voltaire's Candide to Wilson Harris' The Secret Ladder, continuing in such movies as The Road to El Dorado, Sorrow, and that Indiana Jones movie we don't really talk about, video games, music, and a list that only grows larger and larger as time goes on. And when a location is fictionalized as this, it can be it can be hard to sort out fantasy, especially when the myth has been a good part of it, even from the start. So the first mention we have of El Dorado, at least in writing, seems to be back in 1539. Gonzalo de la Peña was chronicling the Spanish explorer Sebastián de Benalcazar, was in search of, quote, in search of a land called El Dorado and Paqua, and of great renown for its gold and gems. So early on we have an idea that there are places with even more riches than already had been found. We must remember that this myth originates basically from the wells found in Tenochtitlan, primarily spread um, by Bernal Diaz del Castillo in his letters. The encounter with the Incas and their treasure sets uh, even more standard for the richest people thought they could find going deeper into the jungle. So we would see El Dorado as a fictional excuse made up by the conquistadors to basically loot, ravage and enslave, conquer South America. But El Dorado is just one part of a monumental fantasy, including locations such as uh, Paititi that we will return to later the land of cinnamon, the seven cities of Chibola, and, of course, Fountain of Youth. All these different locations were said to be somewhere in South America. Even if the mythical places all contain riches, it seems it's not just riches people were looking for when searching for them. They seem to have looked, or some seems to have been in search of more of a paradise on earth than maybe riches and as in monetary value. I think Voltaire described this idea quite well in Candide. Quel est donc ce pays, inconnu à tout le reste de la Terre, et où toute la nature est d'une espèce si différente de la nôtre C'est probablement le pays où tout va bien, car il en faut absolument qu'il y en ait un de cette espèce. And for those who does not speak French, what is this country, which is unknown to the rest of the world, and where nature operates under laws so utterly different to ours? Is there probably the land where all is well? For clearly, such a place has to exist. As I mentioned, the location of the elusive El Dorado has shifted over the centuries. For some time, the place was somewhere inside the Amazon. Conquistadors believed that the warrior woman from Herodotus' writings lived close to the, this golden city, as with much else. European reports did uh, exoticize indigenous women in South America, describing them as dangerous as the land they were trying to civilize. And this idea seems to stem from a priest named Gaspar de Carvarias, writings and he claims to have witnessed all of this in 1541 on uh, the the Aurelias 
expedition down the Amazon River. Caravajal also described how the Amazon women have walls of silver and vast hordes of wealth. And if they were to give birth to a son, they would kill the child and send it to the father. So, and that idea that El Dorado must be in the Amazon lived uh, on till, well, quite late in history, to be honest. And that's why, you know, the Amazon forest basically got its name because they thought the Amazon warrior woman <laughs> was living in there. But um, was El Dorado an invention of solely Europeans? Well, there seems as there's some hybrid nature to it. There are legends among the indigenous people touching on golden king and uh, essential rituals, which we noted in the beginning. But um, it's in all likelihood be, been grouped without discrimination by the Europeans later on, twisting the myth, myth legends into new myth. Take, for example, the idea of the golden king, as described in Historia General y Natural de las Indias, written between 1514-49 by Gonzalo Fernández de Ovidio. And he describes the king and his riches as follow. An exceedingly wealthy and important lord. And it's further revealed that with a certain resin or liquid, which has a very fine odor, he anoints himself every morning. And upon that, that ointment sets and sticks the gold ground, and as fine as is required for what's been stated, and his whole body is left with covered from gold, from the soles of his feet to his head, and as bright as this golden object fashioned by hand by a skilled artisan regularly comes out. And it's my belief that this is that the chief is accustomed to doing that. He must possess some very rich mines of of that particular quality of gold, for in terra firme, I've seen considerable quantities of it. But we also have to consider that the natives fueled some of these mist, at least for survival. Gold was vital in this culture, but it did not really have necessary a monetary value. Gold was part of a religious and spiritual sphere, so you could have gold without really belonging to the elite. This is why I kind of find the ideas of survival gold or apocalyptic gold sold to preppers a little bit funny. Gold, Gold don't really have any value if the society doesn't really care about it. I think you're better off stocking up on bullets, butter and canned food. And with that survival tip, let's continue. But where does this idea of Lake Guatavita being El Dorado originates from? Well, the connection stems from an author named Juan Rodriguez Freile who in 1638 wrote about a ceremony as follow. At this time they stripped the hair to his skin and anointed him with a sticky earth on which they placed gold dust so he was completely covered with metal. They placed him on the raft and at his feet they placed a great heap of gold and emeralds for him to offer to his god. In the raft with him went four principal subject chiefs, decked in plumes, crowns, bracelets, pendants and earrings, all of gold. They too were naked, and each one carried his offering. When the raft reached the center of the lagoon, they raised a banner as a signal for silence. The gilded Indian then threw out a pile of gold in the middle of the lake, and the chiefs who had accompanied him did the same to their own accounts. Freyle is not the first to talk about the Golden King, as we covered some hundred years earlier by Ovedo, but he adds the idea of um, the golden items to be sacrificed in the lake. 
But Freyle isn't the only one talking about golden men and golden lakes. There are even other stories from this era about Paititi, Manoa and other places. Pushing the location of El Dorado further down the river or further up on a different mountain or, you know, a different village. But note that the idea of El Dorado, that El Dorado being a city of gold is really never mentioned in these sources. It's always a man, but it seems as if El Dorado at one point shifts for, you know, being hunted for riches to become a sort of uh, metaphor for paradise on earth, as we noted with Voltaire previously. But a few things that proponents of Lake Watavita use as proof is that the Muisca did have elaborate gold work. The fact that we have found an artifact depicting a golden raft with uh, golden figures on it, and the show even brings that up, and there's other golden artifacts that were found at the bottom of this lake. And the Muisca were accomplished gold workers, but um, hardly the only ones in South America. But we did find an artifact known as the Muisca Raft in uh, 1969. A local farmer found it in a cave in Pasca municipality. And it was part of an offering containing another golden procession figure and a large vessel. And the connection to the Eldorado myth is mainly due to the work of Museo del Oro who acquired the object back in 1969. Since then they have worked hard to cultivate this idea and it seems to be more of a publicity stunt than actual scientific work. This raft is made of gold and depicts 10 figures standing on it. It seems as if a couple of them are rowing the raft Placed in the center of the scene is a more prominent figure who is richly decorated, indicating that it's probably someone of importance. But it's hard to say if it's a god, chief or priest. And the piece does not have any beading or seams that indicate soldering, so it's most likely manufactured with the lost wax technique. But the gist of it, sure, it does sound a bit like the story. But I don't really feel it's enough to conclusively say that Lake Guatavita is the one and true origin of El Dorado. We mentioned these golden artifacts in the lake. That must be where we get to the bottom of this, right? Right? <laughs> As it turns out, Hartley Knowles did lead a company called Contractors Limited. But the show state that... This excavation was in 1912. It was not. It was in 1899. But Knowles didn't excavate the lake. He he drained it almost completely, to be honest. The only the it was only mud left when the water was gone. As for the value, it it ranges. Ancient aliens claim that it was two thousand uh, two thousand twenty thousand dollars worth of treasure in the bottom of the lake. But other sources give a different answer. And we usually know that when you get different estimation, it's kind of a red flag. But the best appraisal, at least, that I could dig up or found was um, that the items found by Knowles were sold at auction at Sotheby's in London for roughly £500. Of the... 63 lots put up 22 of them were of gold but most of that were small trinkets the most significant piece was a breastplate weighing 226 grams or 8 ounces and buyers later donated some of the artifacts to the british museum and the discussion on how you can donate something that's not really yours is another question maybe but <laughs> they think um, to be fair, they might have even gotten how the lake was formed wrong. And it seems as Lake Watavita might have been the creation of a collapsed salt dome and not a meteoric impact. So is El Dorado real? 
Um, no, <laughs> it seems as if it was never really a golden city hidden somewhere in South America just waiting to be rediscovered. It seems to have started as a myth and seems to have expanded and grown to a more prominent legend. But either it was a person, most likely, and from the looks of it there might even have been several Eldorados out there. Or El Hombre, El Dorado. It's not impossible at least. But um, for the city of gold waiting with its riches. Yeah, I don't think it will happen anytime soon. But we will return to El Dorado, kinda, in a moment. But the show breaks off asking why Alien came to visit us. David Childress explained the following... A number of researchers have suggested that ancient aliens have come to Earth primarily to mine gold. Zachariah Sitchin suggested that these extraterrestrials needed gold to spend in their atmosphere and preserve their planet. We also meet Derek Pitts, who explained that gold is instrumental in different applications. Pitts is chief astronomer at the Franklin Institute and seems to have somehow been roped in here. But yes, it is an instrumental metal and also heavily misused. You will find gold in basically everything from electronics. It's really good in electronics. But it's also, you will find it in everything from jewels to guitar strings. And as for Zachariah Sitchin, he did have this idea that alien came from a different planet because they needed more gold for their atmosphere for some reason. And the best and closest place for mining gold was Earth. But these aliens got lazy and started to create a slave and master race. And all those races idea we have heard so many times. And Sitchin claims to have learned this from Sumerian tablets. But um, he never was able to really prove that he could read or translate them. Usually he um, contradicted the um, dictionaries drawn up by the Sumerians themselves. I will not go more in depth here because we have discussed him quite a lot in the past. But I think a Zechariah special might be coming sooner rather than later. So even if we're going to leave El Dorado, well in a sense we will stay for now in South America. But circle back to a place we mentioned just a few moments ago, Paititi. The show introduces this section as if it's the fact that the alien came here to mine gold. And they base this on a body of literature that includes the mystical place Paititi. Before we dig deeper into that, let's see what ancient aliens really say about this mysterious location. Unfortunately, we don't get too great backstory on Paititi from the show. The show only stresses that it's not to be confused with El Dorado, even if it do sounds like they're almost the same. We have Gregory Dayer Minjai, credited as a Paititi explorer, trying to explain it as follows. El Dorado and Paititi are frequently confused. I see El Dorado as being that particular gold-producing site that was in northern South America and Paititi having been another civilization contemporaneous with the Incas in the area of Peru, Bolivia that is yet to be definitively found and that's what part of uh, my quest has been over these last 25 years. So the idea might be that El Dorado is where the gold is made while Paititi is a different civilization but still connected to the Inca. Gregory has been searching for the, this city or civilization since 1984 and seems to be still doing it when I'm looking up at least. But according to a unspecified legend, one Inca road is supposed to lead an explorer maybe to the lost city. Why the Inca people would build a road to another civilization is a bit unclear. But their search starts in Cusco, the navel of the empire. And um, the famous uh, Coricancha, the golden enclosure. It's described that in 1559 the conquistadors tried to tear it down and build a church in its place. 
they're supposed to have a fabulous gilded altar. But according to some records, it pales compared to how Corinne Kansha looked under the Inca rule. Not only there were there many, many golden statues, but they also had sheets of gold covering the walls. We meet another explorer named Brian Forrester, who explained that the Inca relation to gold as follow. Gold was important to the Inca because it was the sweat of the sun. The sun was the highest deity of the Inca, and therefore the sweat of the sun represented the most sacred possession imaginable. We then learned that uh, within Corinchanza could will be able to find key evidence of extraterrestrial visitation. The show claims that the sun god Panchal would point us in the right direction. Giorgio Sukalos explains. Corinchanza was famous for its gigantic golden disc that the ancient Inca worshipped. That was a symbol of a giant golden disc that allegedly landed from the sky in front of the Inca ruler Atahualpa. And he had direct contact, according to the legends, with the sky gods. And the writers of the show then speculate that this golden disc inside a temple must have been to honor an alien visitor. And if the alien was this close to Costco, would it not be easy to think that the city of Paititi must be nearby? We learned that the conquistadors sacked the navel of the Inca Empire. The priests were prepared and moved the gold outside the city. Forrester continued to explain. Before the entire group of Spanish were able to get into Cusco, the priests found out about it, and they had all of the gold from all of the temples brought up to Lake Parai and thrown into the center. None of it has been found to this day. The amount of gold at today's prices would be in the billions. How he know all of this is um, unknown, and why nobody has gone and fished the gold up. Is also a mystery. This um, section is closed out by more Forrester talking about UFOs entering and leaving the lake. He attributes these legends to the local people. And we see in the show interviewing on location indigenous people in the area. They have, um, yeah, they have a team that seems to interview people that maybe have these beliefs, but... We still have Forrester talking over these interviews. We can't hear what they're actually talking about. But um, it doesn't really help that these native people are women too. I feel that they maybe didn't really say what the show wanted them to say. And then just put them on screen. Have somebody else talk over. And just cutting the audio out. That's a theory at least. I'm not sure, but they have uh, they leave the legend of Paititi here, not making us wiser on El Dorado or Paititi. So let's start digging into this part then, shall we? So Paititi might be one of the more unknown mystical cities or sites, even if Shadow of the Tomb Raider has part of its storyline there. When we look into the myth about Paititi, we start to note that some patterns, as with El Dorado, Earlier chronicles mention a legendary place, but usually involving rich mines of, um, of a different sort. One early account involved a white king with large silver mines. Some chronicles do indicate that Paititi was a location, not a golden city, but a lake or a river that joins in some account with the river Manu, Diego and Martin de Secanaro, two brothers, part of an expedition, noted that the Paititi was a river. But as so happens, there was a, quote, very large town with a very large number of people. And it was governed by four uh, Kakikus. And uh, these have a lot of gold and civil tableware. And they sit on golden chairs. It might be good to put to the records that Mario Paglia, an Italian archaeologist, wrote in the Italian magazine Archeo 2002 that he f- had found records about Paititi. 
in the arch- archives of uh, Archivium Romanum Societatis Lesu or RC, a Jesuit order in Rome, Paulia had found a letter. And in this letter, a man called Father Andrea Lopez is writing about a holy miracle in a city called Paititi. As he described it, a very warlike country that used gold, silver and pearls for their pots, just like we use iron. We also see the idea of white people existing in South America pre-Columbus here, since the father, um, the priest, (laughs) described these people as being white, you know, like Germans. Going back to the Amazonian women we talk about briefly in relation to El Dorado was sometimes described as fair and pale. So this idea of white gods, Europeans, had visited these places in the past and therefore could claim the land. Or that the natives treated them as gods when encountered because their god was white and bearded. Now, it's a bit funny that we don't really see this in the natives' depictions, only in the chronicles of written by conquistadores. But back to the back to, to circle back to the miracle described by Father Lopez, the king of Paititi was mocking the cross, but suddenly he started to quote Apostle Paul, and after this he fell to his knees and started to venerate the cross. And uh, We don't really know if the Pope did bless the endeavor to uh, baptize the city of Paititi or proselytize to the city. But um, we don't really learn the location of the city either more than it's 10 days walk out of Peru in some direction. The letter focuses more on the miracle than the site or the legends about the city. The proponents claim that this is absolute proof that Paititi existed as an actual city, but they have not thoroughly dealt with the claim that it might be a river or a lake without a city made of gold. And the city isn't really made out of gold. They just, again, use gold as pots. I guess they were rich, but... (laughs) Well, or it could have been, as we mentioned before, a... small town with nice cutlery and chairs. They just ignore the other description that doesn't really fit their idea of Paititi and focus in on the ones that do, without any proper explanation for it. Something more fascinating than the conquistadores and priests' idea of uh, riches and gold is the influence that the indigenous people actually had on Paititi. Soon after the fall of the Inca Empire, a myth started to spread about the Incari. This name combines the word Inca, that's a quenchanized version of rey or king in Spanish. And this myth seems to incorporate two world-turning events for the Inca. The assassination of uh, Athavalpa, the last independent Sapa Inca of uh, Tavanatishu, and um, a set of rebellions in 1780-1783. As for Athavalpa, he offered a room filled with precious metal to steal the conquistador's greed. The chronicles of the time mention the goldfield room, but um, leave out any mention of commitments made by the Spaniards. And instead of releasing him, the Inca Zapa decapitated him after claiming that he converted to Christianity. And according to the Incari myth, the head was still alive and taken to Cusco, where it was kept. But it would not be dead forever. It was slowly, according to this belief, rebuilding itself. And when Incari's body is again whole, he will judge the Spaniards and throw them out. The myth is also applied to the rebellion leader Tupac Amaro II, who was also believed to have become the embodiment of the Incari. But not in life, but in death. Common for both is that they suffered a death involving dismemberment, 
We see here how the Quencha and Aymara natives incorporated a Masonic idea into their traditional belief. The idea about the Inkari has grown ever since, and now some attribute the founding of cities such as Kero and Cusco to this hero. And in the legends, after he is done fighting the Spaniards, he is believed to have retired to Paititi. We did see with the Eldorado myth that the indigenous people somewhat fed into the legends, but here the Inca has taken a more active role in developing the idea of Paititi. Here the city become more or less the paradise for the hero god, the final resting place after accomplishing his uh, Masonic mission. It's almost as if they have reappropriated a colonial idea of the Golden City, a paradise of Earth again, back into their own culture. While Eldorado was more likely a man, Paititi might have been a real place. As we noted in the earlier sources, it seems to be more likely a river or lake. Maybe it was a settlement. I don't think it was richer than the others and probably met the same end as many other Inca cities. So even if the idea might be more plausible than El Dorado, I find it unlikely that it would live up to the myth we have created around it. I think these explorers we have seen in the show would not really accept less than a city out of gold as the real Paititi, even if they would find it, so to say. If they find it and it was not made of gold, it, they would just go past it, basically. Now, they did talk about a few other things I would like to circle back to. They mentioned the Kore Kancha, and it was indeed a holy place and a lot larger than the show seems to indicate. Kore Kancha was not a single te- temple to one deity. It was more of a district that housed uh, the religious center of the people. Within the enclosure we have different temples and rooms dedicated to different cults. Some the cult of the sun, the moon and other celestial bodies, but um, also weather phenomena such as lightning and rainbows. And in here we also find the garden of the sun and also temporary housing for royal mummies during different celebrations. In it, we uh, found, according to indigenous chronicle Pachachu Yamki, he described a plaque detailing the Inca cosmos residing within the building. And it must have been quite an amazing place to visit. And it's sad to think how much we really have lost due to ignorance, greed, and religious zealots. Remember that Giorgio talked about this being the home of the golden disc of Punchal? That they worshipped? Yeah, some chronicles describe the idol as the sun as a golden disc. But it's also described by others such as Padre Pernabde Kobo as three different idols. Inti, Juri Inti, which means son of Inti, and Inti Huaki, brother of Inti. The most important was the Inti idol. And Inti can be associated with Punchao. So uh, Punchao is usually associated with the morning sun, while Inti is more of a general description of it. But this idol of Punchao is within the sources described as a boy of some 10 years with sandals and a tunic. And according to the Viceroy Francisco Toledo, it contained the vital origin of all previous Zapa Incas. He writes... It was a heart of dough in a golden chalice inside the body of the idol. This dough being of a powder made from the hearts of the dead Incas. It is surrounded by a form of golden medallions in order that, when struck by the sun, these should shine in such a way that one could never see the idol itself, but only the reflected brilliance of these medallions. So even if the sun most likely was important as a deity, the chronicles have by their confusing accounts uh, made us um, 
a bit of disservice here. It often seems as the creator god Viracocha and the sun are mixed up and even have contradicting descriptions. But when we look into the mythology especially, the sun is scarcely mentioned and mostly has a passive role within the stories. On the other hand, Mango Kapka, the first Sapa Inca, was thought to be a descendant of the sun. So all later ruling Sapa Incas was therefore related to the sun. But there is a discussion on how important the sun really was within the Inca mythology. And I can't really find where Giorgio got the idea of uh, Athavalpa has some disc land in front of him, really. But it sounds like the visions of Inca Yupkapki before the attack of Cusco by the Hansa. But it's one of those claims where Giorgio would need to um, really show his sources, basically. And the other was... Uh, Inca Yupkapki was an earlier ruler who had a vision before attack on Cusco. As for the gold in the lake that Forrester talked about, well, it seems to go back to Atahualpa again and his attempt to steal the greed of the conquistadors. But in some legends, when the Spaniard killed the Zapa Inca, the people took the treasure back and threw it in the lake. And I find it quite unlikely that the Spanish forces would let all that gold just be carried off after having it collected in front of them. It makes for a good story, but looking at the sources, it's most likely that the Spaniards just kept it. And that was Paititi for you. And now we're going to leave South America and go a bit closer in time to 1924 and Tokyo Imperial University, where we meet, or we doesn't really meet, but we are told about Professor Hantoro Nagoka, who is conducting an experiment where he directs 150,000 volts of electricity at a mercury isotope for four hours. The goal is to remove one hydrogen proton from the nucleus of mercury and produce another element, gold. And when the experiment was over, Nagaoka looked at the result and realized that he had solved an ancient mystery. He had found the philosopher's stone. Uh, this is at least how ancient aliens start this section. And we will focus more on alchemy and the philosopher's stone. It is, to be honest, quite surprised decent science they will be depicting here, to be honest. Except for what you just heard. While... While the goal goal of creating gold is true, the method, not as much. As I've been able to find, Professor Nagaoka's experiment was performed by, quote, running a mercury lamp for more than 200 hours under a voltage of 226. And he was not the only one. At the same time, with a similar method, Professor A. Miethe also performed performed this experiment, showing it is possible to turn mercury into gold by removing atoms. And both of these experiments generated gold of uh, that weighs less than a gram. We are then taken on a stroll through historic attempts to turn metal into gold, and they bring up Isaac Newton's failed attempt in alchemy. And they're doing a decent job of showing how lazy people can be (laughs) when we just want to, you know, dream turning scrap into riches with no effort. Today we hunt the idea of passive income on Etsy, so things maybe doesn't really change that much. We're then taken to a lab at uh, California Irvine and meet what I assume is a co-worker of Michael Denin. And the show claims that uh, Dr. A.J. Shaka is using alchemy every day. He is in a very nice lab preparing an experiment and explaining how we today can create gold. We put mercury into one of these tubes and mercury has a minor isotope of 0.15% 
Mercury 196, it's called. And that isotope will actually pick up a neutron and in about 23 hours turn into gold. So with the help of nuclear reactors, they bombard the sample with radiation and thus turn the mercury into gold quicker than we did in 1920. They say that you can use other method, as we mentioned before, but that radiation is the quickest and most efficient. This was honestly news to me and to be honest, quite fascinating what we can do. By targeting molecules, we can do things that people have dreamt of for ages. But before you run off to sell your gold before the price drops, you don't really have to worry just yet. Dr. Shaka explained that this method, even if it's more efficient than it was a hundred years ago, might have a few flaws. In 2010, when this aired, the price for a troy ounce of gold, or 31 grams, was $1,873 on average. Dr. Shaka does not give us the weight, but instead the value, and um, it is not extraordinary. So in the experiment, they create gold to a value of 0.3 cents. We also learned that the machine they use costs some $200 to operate per hour. To save you some math, the cost of the machine learns on, you know, to make this amount of gold, $4,200. While impressive as proof it can be done, it's not really at a stage where, you know, it's going to make the gold markets topple over anytime soon. But since we can create a very tiny amount of gold, could they have done this in the past? The short answer is no, but let's, let's hear them out. We are transported to ancient Egypt, where the show wonders how ancient Egypt could have so much gold. We then have Childress and Don claiming that maybe the Pyramid of Cheops probably was a nuclear reactor. Maybe it was used to create all the gold in the ancient Egypt needed. Christopher Dunn explained it as follow. Looking into the blueprints of the internal arrangement of passageways, chambers and shafts, the appearance of it to me did not resemble anything that would be used as a tomb. The precision with which it was built, the precision of the stones that go into building the Queen's Chamber, the Grand Gallery, and then also thousands and thousands of tons of granite that were brought down the Nile 500 miles to build the King's Chamber. These are the features that really shout out and say, there's something going on here, there's something different. It was built like a machine, perhaps it functioned like a machine. And most of us can agree that this is just plain silly. They are correct in that gold was important in Egypt, but we don't need a gold generator to explain how they got it. They, they have a good, or we have a good understanding of the mining operation in Egypt that the Egyptians set up and have some 250 known sites of mining. Furthermore, there was trade with Punt and other locations for gold. So getting these amounts needed was not too big of an issue for Egypt. If the gold would have been created, you probably would not have so many impurities as Egyptian gold do have. If you start to look closer, you will start to notice that it comes in different colors and purity. The methods to produce gold was, was good, but uh, rudimentary. But it seems that they didn't really care about if you know the colors was different between the pieces or on pieces. The important part was that the gold does not tarnish, and therefore it symbolized eternity to the Egyptians. As for Dunn's idea that the pyramid is a machine, we... Yeah, we have looked into that part before and a bit in episode 10 and all the way back in episode 1. Done arguments boil down to I want it to be true and 
basically leaves it at that. <laughs> the pyramids has no moving part whatsoever, nothing beneath it, nothing that would be able to really interfere with something else. Dunn has done little to nothing to even make a dent in the scientific body of work that adds to our understanding of the site. I think we can really leave it there for now at least. We will leave here today, but make sure to come back next time. Then we will explore the rumors of an ancient library under the Sphinx. And if the current dating of it is accurate, we will also solve the enigma of Rennes-le-Château, a small French village here where the priest suddenly had more wealth than anyone could dream of. Or at least according to the tales. We will also look into whispers of the Holy Grail resting in a church outside Edinburgh, Scotland. But till then, remember to leave a positive re- review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or to your friend at the Trench. I would also recommend visiting diggingupancientaliens.com to find more info about me and the podcast. You will also find us on most social media sites, and if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or want to write an email in all caps, you find my contact info and the website. You find sources, resources used to create this podcast there too. You will also find often reading suggestions if you want uh, to learn more about the subjects we bring up. Sandra Marteleur created the intro music and our outro is by the band called Transkruv who sings their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists will be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 